so the expert thing is what you focus this Right. Okay, so you're reading, you're reading these books at what? Hmm? At what? You like to read these books. That oh, did, on innovation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I just, I just like these innovation books because uh, you're f- they're free to... Uh, they're not caught up in a, a lot of jargon. They're, they're sort of outside the inside, if you will. You so, know how there's always the inside? Like, ooh, all the technology, all the names and all the whatever. It's and, too narrow is what you're saying. Yeah, these are very broad books on innovation, and they're talking about how innovators work and how they think and how they create new concepts and that change that change things. What What's the overall common thread for these innovators is it that they're like super super specific well they don't well, one common thread is they don't call in the experts <laughs> really <laughs> yeah no they don't they get raw materials they're almost like makers you know okay so they get raw like um one of the one of the examples in one of the books was olpc one laptop per child and the idea was to put a laptop in the hands of every child in the entire world and the goal was to make to sell the laptop, sell the laptop for one hundred dollars. And everybody was like, "A laptop for a hundred bucks? That's not happening. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. That's stupid. Right? You can't and, do that. You can't well, and part you, of it was I think I think part of it was a a profit. Like, how are we going to make money off this? Right, because well, that's that's the way businesses. They right. he's he, these guys are thinking. How do we put a laptop in front of every child so they have access? You know, there's digital democracy is one of the concepts, and just so they have access to it. And this doesn't mean oh, you get to watch cat videos on YouTube. It's more just, <laughs> and so it it just means that they'll have access to information like Wikipedia or something like that that maybe they wouldn't have access to because they're in a village in a Quonset hut or whatever. And so the OLPC concept, they it's, it's really fascinating. They touch on some of the issues like we've got to make it obviously very child friendly. We've got to make it because there's areas where there's no internet and there's no electricity. Like how do we, and so they've got, they, they, they strapped on like a, one of those hand crank generators, you know, and the kids could, the kids could wind it themselves. Oh, that's cool. And create and create energy, um, for the battery. And, um, and then they had the antenna and they're like, well, how are we going to do this antenna when we open this case so that it doesn't like, it's not so obtrusive that you can fold it down, but you can put it in a bag or something, but it's not, you know, but it works, it's functional. And they had all these, and then the glare and the screen, because it's, these kids are out in the, you know, bush, some of them, you know, and, and they're just, they're in a dirt floor or they're out in this, you know, how do we make this so it doesn't drain the battery? And, and there's all these, there's all these considerations and they did OLPC and it was lauded at first. Everybody was like, yes, this is great. Digital democracy. And then, um, and then it got, it got political, you know, I mean, there were things that happened at first, you know, like Intel was on board, at least the story from this book. And then, um, and then I think something happened and then the, the companies wanted to compete with OLPC and they wanted to make them even cheaper and do all this other stuff. And so it changed, it changed, but I don't want to get into that because that, and then they, and then some critics swung against it and then it kind of damaged it. 
and um, and then they criticized, well, you haven't been able to get the distribution up the way you were supposed to and all this other stuff. But I don't want that to be the main story. The main story here that to me that was cool was the innovation story because it was like, well, you know, we're not going to pull in the guys from <laughs> we're not going to. We're not going to ask for the free time from the guys from Apple or HP or Samsung or whatever to help design this thing. We're going to figure this out ourselves and we're going to make this, you know. Well, it's interesting though that, and just, I just want to hear this flush this story out a little bit because, because I, I got a recording and I can play that. No, no, I got it. So, um, just give me like three seconds on this. Well, we're in, in New York time. In tennis rockers time. That's like three seconds. 30, it's like 30 minutes. Yeah, get ready, everybody. <laughs> you might want to go get your cup of coffee yeah, now. You can come back in a little bit. So initially everyone's like, yeah, that's a dumb idea, but they're going ahead with it anyway. It starts getting some momentum and then it's like, well, we want to get in on that. I thought you said it was a dumb idea, right? right. And then it's, well, I think there's now, now it's got some, some bad merits to it. But why? You, you know what I'm saying? I guess you can argue every side of it but i think it's funny that people have an idea and there's tons of naysayers in the beginning of the of of the idea itself well that's ridiculous you can't do it but or they don't want to do it correct and then it starts forming and shaping and then the experts are like oh i see it now right and then it becomes this thing and it could be well, that's a vision thing, a propri- right? A proprietary thing also where if that company starts doing it and then the big company's like, we don't want competition. Right. We don't want that. That's yeah. a dumb idea. Then they start, then the rhetoric starts. Then the disinformation starts of, this is a really bad idea. Well, because it's a threat to them. Because now what happens, if you think about it, the cascading series of events means that they have to, they have to sell a chip for a lot less than they were selling a chip for in order to meet these requirements. And the problem is, is then when that happens, there's going to be other manufacturers that are like, wait a second, how come that chip, you sold that chip and I want that chip for, for mine. And all of a sudden now they're reduced to, if they were selling the chip at say 20 bucks, they're now selling it for two. That's a very big difference to a manufacturer profitability. And there's a whole cascading series of events that happen around that. And you're, right? and you're under <clears throat> undermining someone's profit margins. Right. Which, you know, to be fair to companies at some level, I mean, there are, you know, there are jobs, there are network distribution networks, there are offices, there are all this infrastructure that's in place. And, and that's a real threat, you know? So, so do so you I think mean. possibly, I'm not, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, but that I don't believe that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) They're out there. Yeah. Just so you know, they're out there that based on what you just said, that this cascading, this kind of house of cards or domino effect by doing this, this great intention could undermine all these other things and actually do a lot of damage that, well, we, there would be a backlash on it. Well, they've the, the problem is is that there's been some experience with this, right? I mean, they so that when they, it takes a little bit for them to see it, but they've seen it in other instances. You know, like what did Uber do to cab companies, right? What did you know? There's all these things like what did Amazon do to bookstores, right? Like, oh, wait, a, okay, hold on a second here, right? And 
and they're they're but but a lot of this stuff becomes inevitable at a certain point. But we look at things <clears throat> also not just as bookstores because bookstores were in buildings. Right. Buildings are run and owned by management companies. Yeah. And, right. And landlords. And yeah. Then they don't make money. And right. then but wait, the land that that's on that happens to be in a mall that's owned by is this tax revenue. Yeah. Which then affects the town. Right. All these things. Right. So. I don't want to get away from what you were saying. So you can take something that's this concept that doesn't exist. An expert would say it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And then get it to the point where all of a sudden people are sweating. Like, how did you do? Th okay, here we are now. We can make this chip like this. Right. We can make a computer with a crank, which I would argue is actually really beneficial. How great right. is that? Smart. Yeah. And then also ruffle the feathers of the giants. Right. I think that's amazing. Whether it worked or not, that you got to that point is crazy. So it's interesting to me because for tennis, because I think if we start thinking about this innovation stuff, it I don't think it would have a negative impact on tennis. I think it would actually have a positive impact on tennis because I'm trying. we're already losing revenue, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I'm trying to see how it would cause and and anybody who's listening to this you know feel free to go to the tennisrockers.com website and leave a comment um but i i i i'm struggling to figure out how this hurts tennis if we if we start bringing in people that are outside of tennis instead of talking to the same people that are inside tennis. And so there's this concept in the book called zero gravity thinkers. And the idea is, well, I'll let the recording explain it, but here, I'll play this for now and we'll see where it goes. Hopefully it works. Mao's fog of war approach runs counter to the way most research driven companies behave as well as to our culture of experts. The addiction to preliminary research has tended to yield analytical data so dense and difficult to navigate that it forms its own kind of fog. Many design firms, too, are grounded in heavy upfront research. In fact, there is something of a schism in the design world now. The research first crowd points out how creative and innovative design research has become. And indeed, it's true that the best design research is itself designed to produce original and sometimes startling insights. That said, there is a growing faction, both inside and outside the design world, that argues in favor of approaching a problem or challenge with less expert knowledge, not more. Innovation expert and author Cynthia Barton Rabe has helped popularize the notion that breakthrough ideas are more likely to come from zero-gravity thinkers, meaning those who aren't weighed down by expertise and conventional wisdom. Some innovation pundits now refer to the curse of knowledge, which holds that as expertise increases, creativity tapers off. <clears throat> to maximize creative opportunities during the temporary state of not knowing, Mao developed a number of studio guidelines focused on ways to encourage experimentation and free association. Mao felt it wasn't enough just to preach the value of experimentation. There was a need to provide people the time and security to experiment, to connect ideas and explore adjacencies. In a word, to drift. And giving designers an hour or two to drift is not enough, Mao believes. That limited amount of time 
will bring forth the surface ideas, but not the deep woods ones. In the studio, Mao tried to set project schedules so that people might have days or weeks to drift. And during this period, criticism of ideas was to be tempered, if not withheld. Most people are too quick to criticize and cut off ideas, Mao says. That criticism should be postponed until the later stages of creative development, when all ideas are subjected to rigorous critical analysis and tested to separate out the best. One of the laws of Mao Studio is harvest ideas, edit applications. Mao also has tried to foster experimentation by emphasizing its value. What often keeps people from experimenting is the notion that if the effort doesn't yield something immediately usable, and the reality is most experiments don't, then the experiment itself has been a waste of time. But in design, as in science, an experiment can have great importance regardless of outcome. It can better guide subsequent efforts so that the failed effort becomes an important step on the path to producing a successful design down the road. With this in mind, IDEO and other leading design firms have embraced the fail early, fail often model, while Mao, for his part, has instilled in his studio the practice of capturing accidents, wherein failed experiments are documented, preserved, and practically worshipped. They are viewed as successes that simply have not happened yet, or, as Mao puts it, each one is the right answer in search of a different question. Mao thinks that, as a culture, we judge experiments much too harshly, and, as a result, it limits our progress. Ambitious efforts to create change, such as Dean Kamen's Segway or Eve Behar's Exo Laptop, are sometimes held to an immediate pass-fail standard. If they don't change the world overnight, they're marked F. But in design, and particularly in complex design, that seeks to alter the way we live, success is likely to arrive in stages via a series of experiments or iterations. The first version of a radical design to make its appearance in the world may be imperfect, but it still can play an important role. It shows that a different and maybe better way of doing things is possible, Mao says. And after all, nobody can claim it's impossible anymore. So I thought that was um, because I think when we think about uh, making changes to like tennis and the way we come to tennis and the way we are in tennis, you know, so at tennis clubs or I think we need a radical redesign. I think we need to start experimenting with that. Well, I think something that that was a great little clip, by the way. One of my big issues with school, and I'm not a school hater. I appreciate teachers. I love school. It's for, it's the inspiration building, but school doesn't allow for zero gravity thinkers. What do you call it? Zero, is that what he said? Did I say that right? Zero gravity. Um, yeah, zero gravity thinkers. Because you're, because you're, there's no time to drift because we're trying to squeeze things in. So, we allot, for the younger kids at least, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, and then we're switching to something else. When playtime is broken down into a half an hour or, or gym, 
or sorry, kinetic wellness is broken down into these small little segments. There is no time to drift and process, but also to put things into context. And I think that's dangerous because if you have this, and I agree with this, because if you have this narrow field of vision and you hear something that doesn't fit into that, into your puzzle, the piece feels like it's, it doesn't go there, you're instantly going to say, no, that doesn't work. So you, in order for anything to develop, or I think to change, so you're talking about these radical changes around tennis, the tennis club, how we teach tennis, we have to a lot more than half an hour segments, which I would transition, translate into more than try it for a year, right? We, if we're going to make changes, we have to allot the time to drift but then we also have to unite as clubs across the country or across the state, which I've also mentioned before, where we all speak to one another on a regular basis saying, how is this going? Because we're not in competition with each other. There's plenty of people out there. So we need to allot that time for all of us to drift and try different things and then have each of the clubs say, hey, we're trying this nutritional class. We're also trying this. And then... Remember we talked about having some sort of website for all the clubs and the pros to check in on, on innovation. It's the tennis innovation site. Maybe we need to have fewer clubs. I don't know because you we were saying that competition is one of the things <clears throat> that breeds lack of sharing and lack of ideas. You know what I mean? Because it's feared like... Well, if they've got that idea, but the reality, the reality is that as soon as you implement an idea and if it's really working and if it's a huge draw, the guy over there is going to figure it out and he's going to start implementing it. So why I don't, I don't think they do that though. Yeah. It's very territorial from my vantage point. Mm -hmm. I don't see clubs duplicating what other clubs are doing. I think yeah. they just are like, they dig their heels in and say, this is what we do here. Right. That's it. Right. We don't, they don't offer, if they look at something else, it's, it's the expert thing where no, we, I don't do that. This is an elite club. Right. But your elite club isn't making any money. Right. I don't want to do that. Right. Or this is a social club. I don't want to, I don't know. We don't offer that for right. those kind of people. Right. We're not interested in that. And part of that might also be because they've done what you were starting out in the beginning talking that they've they've sort of conceptualized or condensed that into one thought. So as soon as you say, well, why don't we offer yoga? <laughs> or why don't we, why don't we, you know what I mean? Like, why don't we do something like that? They're like, that's not tennis. My concept of tennis does not include that. If you want yoga, go to one of those strip mall places or go to the health club or watch an, a, a live stream, but that's not what we do in tennis. But even, if, like, hold on, but, but even if it's not, you see, we were using things like nutrition and, I mean, crazy. Their <laughs> concept, yoga, their concept of right, tennis. Right, but yeah. just even a concept like, we're gonna have a strategy class and the history of tennis mm -hmm. in a classroom where we're actually not gonna be playing tennis, but we're gonna be learning about tennis. Right. What do you mean? We're not going to be on the court? No. We're right. going to have a classroom like they do in college. Right. And we're going to actually put on a lecture right. about tennis. Right. How cool would that be? Well, we've... I haven't seen that anywhere. Well, we've become 
um, we've, I think it's almost become a stigma that if you're not on the court, you're not playing tennis. It's a stigma. There's a huge stigma out there and I'm not trying to make it into a woo woo thing for anybody who's listening. I'm telling you, I see it like we were working, you know, I love my colored cones, but I also have numbered cones. <laughs> you love your cones. You <laughs> so love I have, your cones. So I have, I have numbered cones too, but we were working on a brain exercise the other day and I just thought of it myself. I didn't phone an expert or <laughs> look in a book or whatever. I was like, this is interesting because I wanted to touch on the oral processing aspect because I wanted to see the brain in action. So tennis is a very responsive sport, in my opinion. So throw ball, hit ball, <laughs> see ball, right? And it's, it's interesting because I put out, the first thing I did was I put out numbered cones and I did one through six left to right. And I was like, I want you to stand there and I'm gonna call a number. I'm gonna call a number and, and, and so I did a little experiment and I was like, I was like four and then I threw the ball. And I'm not expecting perfect hits and all this other stuff. I just wanna see the brain. So I, so what I did was the first time I did it, I'm looking directly at the cone. So before I say it, I go four and my subject, my son <laughs> goes to the cone, <laughs> right? Four. But then I started doing this four so and I looked the other, other way, way away from the cone and I went four. And at first he went, he went that way. And then after two or three tries, he realized it was the reverse. The brain realized it was the reverse. And so then all of a sudden he's looking for my visual cue. And I went four and he went wing to the, to the right area. So then I said, well, you know what? I'm not going to do this. I'm going to stare right at you four, but I didn't, I didn't do four. I switched it to six and I went six and I said, and I don't want you to look, I want you to memorize where that location is. And they struggled with it at first. You know what I mean? Because they're so used to this visual processing thing, but I wanted them because I have in my head that in the future, if they work with a high level coach at some point, the guy might say, hey, I want you to hit cone number one on the deuce and then go to the ad for, for four. And that, you know, and I'm like, I don't want them to be like, you know, and I know you've said to me in the past where you're like, okay, you have students where you've said, oh, I want you to go on the deuce and, you know, go to the baseline deuce and then we're going to hit, you know, and they're just like, they're standing in the center and you're like, no, I, no, I, you've been coming to lessons for like years that the deuce is over there that, and, and I know that's probably extreme, but I'm just saying, no, so on, you know what you did? Uh, you inadvertently walked into and created Nick, both Nick Boletari's zonal system. So there's different oh. methods of... This is because I'm not an expert. <laughs> uh, but hold on. But did you need to consult an expert? Here we go. No, you made it up yourself because uh, the court spoke to you. I was curious. Yes. Yeah, and I was like, because I had these numbered cones and then I started putting the pieces together and I'm like, wait a second. I was like, I want to see how the brain processes this. So, so the zonal system, Nick has the court broken down into... Uh, five zones, one through five. And it's where the ball lands in, so let's say zone one's up at the net. Yeah, I think but, I've seen this. And yeah. then, then there's zone two, zone three is like between, it's the service line area, zone four is no man's land, and then there's zone five, which is deep to the baseline. And it was where do you want your opponent standing based on where, what zone your ball lands in. And... So he, he came up with this concept and I teach, I was actually just doing it 
all month. I love the zonal system. There's other ones too. There's the color-coded system. I think that uh, one of the clubs in the North Shore mm. teaches this one where if the ball is going to land in this area, you're, you're, you're in a green light attack. If the ball lands here and you're standing here, you're in a red zone, so you want a neutral ball. You want more of a rally ball. Right. Again, the, all these systems work, right? They're, yeah. They all have merit. But I think this speaks to if I had said to you, or if you, like, you know, you really need to, and you're an expert in something else, and I say, you know, you should check, it, check out Nick Boletari's zonal system, and, and, but, you're, but you're someone that's an expert in something else. Like, I don't, I don't need that system. But you created your own system, which was created by a top-level coach for X amount of years who's highly successful. You didn't, you didn't need to speak to an expert. You needed to spend time and drift on the court with your with Cannibal and Bomber, and what happens is over time, I would say the ball spoke to you. I would say the court spoke to you. You're so engaged in it, in the drifting and being around it all the time mm -hmm. for your uh, R and D or your yeah. research and development, your creative time. Yeah, that you're looking now for other things to address within the context of your business, of your structure, which is the court and the ball and the net. And saying, oh, we have to work on the the mental aspect of this now. What can I do? And then you invented it. Yeah. But, right. So I'm not under my. I'm I'm actually giving a huge compliment because I don't think enough people do that. I well, agree. I, and I also don't think enough people focus on the oral commands because we're so visual in tennis. And I and and that was the thing that I was like, it's a brain processing thing because the thing is is that. For I think for you to be a successful tennis player, you, I believe now more than I ever did, that it's not about the strokes. I mean, that's nice and that's great and you need all that, but you need to be able to, that's just on autopilot to some degree. The bigger thing is, is what you're using your energy and processing, like what is this guy doing or what is he not doing? And what am I doing to counter what he's doing or not doing, <laughs> right? What am I, that's very, and so I'm trying to, light up the brain in different ways so that it's not uncomfortable to be able to do that because when they're i want them when they're 16 to be like <clears throat> okay i i'm clear of mind and emotion i can think and i can start processing these things rather than get in there and 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 all you've known for 10 years of tennis development is the strokes, the strokes, the strokes and doing all this. And then the coach says, you know, you need to be doing this. And it's like, Oh my God. Yeah, but here's why this is smart. Cause you're tackling this giant now because when they're 16 and the hormones are raging, that's not the time to start. Hey, you know, I think we need to address your breathing. They're already a hot mess. Right. You're already building in the, the tools right now that they can be a hot mess at home, <laughs> but on the court, at least when they're competing right. at a level, hopefully at that time at 16, 17, that they're, they at least can turn to that. Right. But I think also it'll have other benefits in life anyway, that they'll learn those skill sets. But I also have this theory on all this acquisition stuff. And my theory is that you i'm sure there's literature out this but you there's different phases of acquisition of that con, of those concepts and knowledge and and all that other stuff so somebody can tell you about this and that's one phase 
Somebody can tell you and you kind of get it, kind of. That's another phase. Somebody can tell you, you kind of get it, and you use it to some degree, but you don't really do it well. And then there's then there's another phase where you're actually using it and you're kind of starting to use it well, but not you're not really that great. So this is, I guess, analogous to the ascension of mastery in something. You're using it not that well, but pretty good. And then you're starting to use it and you're getting pretty good at using it, but they're still flawed. And then you're at another stage where you're using it and it's really working and you're pretty good at it. And now you want more. And I think along the way, my concern is that in those first four run-ups, it's so easy to just walk away. You hit the smarkles button. Right? I, Isn't I, that? No, you, I, I, and I think uh, I, you just stepped in it again. You stepped in a big pile of poop in a good way. You ready? When I have a class, I'll say, listen, I'm, I'm flushing something out. I need you to stick with me over the next few weeks. <laughs> You're not gonna, I'm trying to, I'm trying to come up with some new drills. I'm trying to go down this path, which I think is gonna help you play better. Bear with me. And that's the drifting for me. That not, and I've already sent up the flare that, I'm going to need a little bit of help on this one, right? We're, you're going to let me know. And, and I have to interrupt you. The interesting part about this drifting thing is that it seems to me at this juncture, there's a divide. And the divide is like either you're on autopilot and you're teaching and you're not really considering your students. And that's that coach. And then there's you. And I think what you're doing when you're drifting is you're considering, you're, you're, see, you're, you're in the mix of what's going on with your students you know your drills, but you're not trying to force the square peg into the round hole. You're like, oh, wait a second. I have these students that have either limited mobility or they have whatever they have, limited experience or they have different experience or whatever. And now you got to like, you're trying to infuse those standard drills with. No, no, I'm not making standard drills. I'm, I'm not. But, but yes. Maybe modify, whatever. I, no, so I'm, I'm, there's the drill that I want to create. <laughs> There's the drill that, for me, that makes it, I think they could all, all my students could benefit from this. Then I start creating the drill, usually multiple drills. Like, okay, I think I want to come up with three or four new drills, and I don't consult books. I just try to do it myself, right? And as I'm doing that, each class, based on what you just said, their health, their mobility, their skill set, that one drill that I think is really great now needs to be modified for five other classes <laughs> because they're all different levels. So I have a generalized concept of the drill that I want to do, and I start tweaking it out. There's the, let's say there's version one. Okay, I think I could push this a little bit. Version one worked for five of my drills. Then I tweak it to make it a little bit more difficult and heady. That's version two. Oop. Three got it. Two kind of got stuck on that. That's pretty much where they can take it. So I got to remember for those two classes on the drop shot drill I created, we're going to only do version two. I don't get to go to version three, which would be a collective skill set. Ever or just for the moment? 
for at that moment or uh, for right. or maybe never i don't know it depends on and right if they can get it or not but also ready it also depends upon their enjoyment their frustration levels if they leave and say you know that was really that was frustrating but really interesting could we do that again the answer is yes if i if it goes over like a lead balloon but i don't bag it on the first day because i've already prefaced this with, <clears throat> I'm trying to flush this out. I need to drift. That's a good way to put it. It's a, I need to drift on this. I, my brain is working for you, but I can't just do it in a vacuum at home. I need to see you do it. I'm the director. You're the, you're the play. I need to see what tools we have. What's the blocking? Is it going to work for you or not? And it, but if they can get the concept in one of the versions then I think that that's been successful. And how long I stay on it will also be dictated by if I'm seeing the improvement. And then they usually, if they see the improvement, well, <laughs> here's a good thing. I said, all right, this is this last week. Game to 16. And one of the pros I teach with looks over and goes, 16? I go, it's a time thing. Because usually if you go to 10, right. it lasts about 15 minutes. Right. And the idea is that that's until the next rotation. So that 15 minute rotation keeps frustration levels down if someone's not good at it. Right. But when you go to 16 or 20, it's gonna last a half an hour. But everybody's, if everyone's playing well, it doesn't feel like a half an hour. Right. And I only get with the warm up and the, the like if I do like a, a quick practice round of what we're gonna do, a review, I only get the two drills. Right. But no one's complaining because they're they're all they're fully engaged. Right. So them allowing me to drift and kind of over three or four weeks flush out, and as the drills tweak, they actually become new drills, even right. though the concept might be the same. Right. But I have really good students that allow me to do that. I've had students in the past that, well, where, where is this going? This we did this last week. Right. That that kind of student doesn't work for me. Do you see the analogy though between that and the recording? What they were talking about, like in other words, the people who write off the experiment as an F right away because it doesn't provide results, and then there's the being patient with the experiment and then lauding the idea because it worked. Do you think right? though that knee jerk reaction, like I get on the course, is frustration or and like we had talked about a chink in the armor? So if you're the expert and I come up with. Uh, concept and I'm not in your field of expertise and I come up with something and they're like, well, that's not going to work because it actually is an attack on what they know and they didn't think about it. Well, here's an interesting thought. I agree, but I, here's another interesting thought is there we are creating many pseudo experts on the court with players who've played for years. And then when you approach them and you've got something new for them and it makes them feel awkward or it makes them feel less than in their skill sets they're suddenly maybe not so open to it anymore. They're like, well, this isn't, I don't understand why we're right. It, it, I don't know if it embarrasses them, but they, they've, they've been considered it. We've had this, we've had this analogy before where we've had the person who's really athletic or whatever. And, and, and you put something in front of them and it makes them look not athletic anymore. And to the rest of the group, they're like, the rest of the group is like, huh, wow. So, uh, they are uh, normal after all, right? They are average or they are whatever. And suddenly that expert, that pseudo expert is like, I'm not digging this. I don't want to do this anymore. This is not cool. 
You know what I mean? This has made me look bad. Isn't that the same right? thing as a club then? Well, <clears throat> I've been running this club for 15 years. Tw- my whole life, my dad ran this club. Right. I, his, fan, his father did it before him. Right. Three generations of us running this club. Sure. I'm not going to put a class in here. But, That's ridiculous. But you know what's interesting about that is maybe there's a different way to communicate to those people because it's like, listen, yes, but in that time, do you think the market changed? Do you think the market changed for your grandfather or your father? Did it change? Or was it always even and stag? You know, it was it always even. And they'd be like, no, it surged with popularity. Blah, blah, blah. It was doing great. Now, if only we could get back to those days. Well, well, okay, so it surged in popularity, but now it's down. So the market's changed. So if the market's changed, why has it changed? Well, I don't know. I'm not an economist. I'm a tennis guy. Okay, but but if the market's changed and it's going this way, you're still a business guy. So how how would you... How could you meet that somewhere, come up with some ideas and bring some things in where you could counteract how the market's changed? I mean, you're still a business guy after all, right? Or are you just a tennis pro? Because if you're just a tennis pro, then you should close this place up or sell it to somebody else and then work for them as the tennis pro, but, right? But, who's, so, I mean, but so you said market change. Who's hmm. setting the market though in tennis? Well, that's it. Are we are we are we relying on, I'm asking, I'm just, yeah. I'm processing, yeah, we're yeah. spitballing this out right now. Right, yeah. Does professional sports fuel the local sport and then I'm going to open the shop that sells the Bears memorabilia because the Bears are popular. So I have a, right. I have a Chicago Bears <clears throat> store where I shell, uh, sell all their memorabilia and all the fandom stuff. Right. Or are you creating the memorabilia thing that's actually your own thing? Or are you just attaching it to? So is your club... And I think that's where tennis is confused. I'm confused. Who's... Yes. So if we're relying on the USTA or professional tennis, whatever it may be, professional athletes, tennis players, and that to fuel the interest in the game, and then we're going to open our doors, that's a lot different from Ruth Chris's Steakhouse, which created their own. They're not... They're not waiting on some other outside thing to create an interest in stake. They're doing their own thing. Well, and there's I, a company I, so, told me that their name was stupid too. <clears throat> that? No, I didn't. Yeah. But I would argue that I, th- I, I think what you're we're saying is is that we've been waiting for the big <laughs> Buddha in the sky to. That's what it feels like to push through what the next thing is in tennis. Because I, it was funny because when I was talking to one of the people that we both know, and he said to me, boy, I hate to think of what happens to this game when Federer goes. And I was like, really? I was like, it's just a guy. It's just, you know, and for people, people <laughs> like, that's it. I'm done with the Tennis Rockers podcast. <laughs> not listening anymore. You're a Federer hater. I'm not. I'm just like, but he's still just a guy. Like, so's Nadal, right? Wait, and they come and go. So this one guy has that much influence? <clears throat> or even, take out those three. They and this go. is a guy who owns a pro shop, and he does a lot of work in tennis, and he teaches tennis, so. No, no, he's not. He's yeah. all in on yes. tennis. So for him to sit there and say that, it's not a one-off couch beer drinking comment. He sees the impact monetarily on Federer being in the game. 
but isn't that interesting though that that comment comes out but sports fans will stick with their local team and watch them lose for how long was it for the Cubs? Yeah, 103 years or whatever it was, yeah. But they're going to stick with them. Right. Just holding on to hope. Right. Nobody does that at But that was a major league team with a lot of push behind it. A lot of because they generate money and stuff like that. But you know, I agree. I think this is where we're, we're really, we keep waiting for the big pronouncement. <laughs> You know what I mean? From we've got the tennis channel and the tennis channel is now, I don't know if you know this, but tennis channel now has tennis channel plus. So you've paid for a subscription. Now you can pay for an even better subscription for this. And it's like, wait a second. And tennis is off the TV for the most part. I mean, I think they might broadcast Wimbledon. I'm not sure if they still do, but we keep waiting for all of that to, and maybe what we need to do is reinvent it and kind of go more grassroots that it's more at the local level because it's really interesting. How is it that in certain parts of the country, there's a hotbed of tennis? I think you had a student who was in Georgia. Maybe Texas. I was Texas. Was it Texas? Texas and Atlanta are like, she plays six days. She's 64. Didn't you tell me they would like, they were late and they said, if you're late again, you oh, so that was, are kicked <laughs> out or something. Like, yeah. Alta. So this is two things. I had a woman I taught last month. She was visiting her daughter her daughter-in-law and her daughter-in-law was like, you have to hit with my mother-in-law. She's going to be driving me crazy. <laughs> she needs to hit a ball. Right. She's, she's a little spitfire. Right. She's from Louisiana living in Texas. <clears throat> you need to come on out. She needs to come out and hit with you. I was like, we'll book it. It's fine. Spitfire 64. She's running the show. She came out. It was, it was from mini tennis. It was like, Bam, bam, bam. I'm like, you're okay? She's like, let's keep going. She was hilarious. It was great. Good tennis player. Moving great at 64. Awesome. And I said, how, how much do you play in Texas? Oh, I play six days a week. And I manage two teams. <laughs> I was there like, oh, go, my man. God. Yeah. So there was her. And then I had my friend, uh, Mikey Z, had moved. And he had just moved to Atlanta with a new job. And he was in a subdivision where they had tennis courts. But within that division in Atlanta, there were like four different teams. Yeah. And he was scheduled to play, and he was, I don't know, five minutes late to the warm-up. Right. And they somebody had already jumped in, and he's like, I'm so sorry. I said, you're, you're benched now. Right. For, for how long? Three matches. What? You were late. We, we, got, we got stuff to do. They were so... Yeah. Hardcore. <laughs> so he's manning the grill for the last three. Nice. But it's all centered around that, yeah. you know? And again, that had nothing to do with, he's a good mm. tennis player. He's a great athlete. That had nothing to do with Roger Federer. No, it had to do with, this is how we do things here. And, it, and it's about their social. And so it was, it, like, it was like a mini culture head. And so really what it sounds like you're saying is, is that we need to be responsible for creating our own mini cultures. Yes. We need to be responsible for creating that. Yeah, and I think it starts with, what you said about being, I would use the word generalist, but they said time to drift. Yeah. If you're a generalist and you can not get bogged down in all the details, if there's too many details, you can't, it's like the forest right. from the tree analogy. But right? in order to create that mini culture, we have to break out of our, the way we think about doing this. Right. I mean, I, Cause if we don't, if we just keep going, we're not, creating a mini culture <laughs> we're not right so maybe it's maybe it's 
tennis and food. Maybe it's tennis and yoga. Maybe it's like you do these hybrids or whatever. Maybe it's tennis and stretching. Maybe it's tennis and a, a book hour. Maybe it's tennis and whatever. I'm just saying like, it sounds weird because people are probably like, what? A tennis and a book hour? But it's like, well, no, we're all reading this, this cool book and we wanted to play some tennis while we're at it. So here's what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to configure this whole thing. We're going to, first, we're going to do the book club thing. And then we got to go do tennis because maybe the book is the draw. <laughs> you know what I mean? The book is the draw. Everybody's sitting around and they have the book discussion or whatever. And there's 12 people or whatever. And, you know, we're going to play doubles afterwards. And so that's three courts of doubles. And so it's like, okay, we're going to do that. And it's pretty cool because then they're like, you know what? I didn't just sit on my butt and talk about a book. I got out there and I did that. And then afterwards they talk or whatever. I'm just, I, that's just a, a, probably a horrible example. No, it's not actually. I think actually that's a really interesting idea. I would actually do that for younger people. Also, you set out reading time to tennis. Yeah. For high schoolers, you get to come in and I think you start them early. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I'm just, yeah, but whatever. But what if you had the pros? What if you had the pros and you had a circle of the, uh, you had a circle around the pro and the pro did a read aloud, a a read read aloud. Yeah. A read aloud for, and I know it's an hour, it's an hour lesson, but did like a, just a 10 minute, 15 minute read aloud. No. Where it was like, you know what I mean? An and hour. Then, you do an hour. Here's one. Well, you, I'm, I, hold on. I'm saying a, if you want to combine. No, no, I know I got it. Hold on. Would you say as a parent, would you be against this? You're going to drop the kids off for an hour read aloud and then an hour of tennis. They're gone for two hours. No, I, would, I wouldn't a, be good. I'm just saying if, if, if the kids are super, super duper scheduled or whatever, that's, you know, he's got to go to piano and then he's got to go to whatever. No, I'm just but, but, but hold on. But there's <clears throat> benefit to that. That's what I'm saying. Like that's, but two then you're going to have pros. I'm sorry. But you're going to have pros who are like a, what I'm supposed to read a book in a circle to the kids. And that's part of my tennis teaching. Don't be an expert. Don't be an expert. <laughs> I'm just saying you're going to, yeah, you are going to have that. Okay. Right. Here's and they're one. like, I, I don't, I don't, you know, public speaking is a big fear or whatever. And they're like, ah, yeah, I don't want to go there, but you're, we're going to have to, but, but that's, and, but then you create that community. Just take this one seed idea. You create that community around that one seed idea. Do you know who really invented the cell phone? It's uh, a trick question. No. You ready? Gene Roddenberry, who created Star Trek. There you go. Right. Flip, right? Yeah. And everyone's like, that could never be done. That inspired, that in science fiction inspires people sure. because the science fiction thinks in terms of, without being an expert, it would be great if we did this. What if we had a, a world that had this kind of thing? And then somebody looks at it and goes, I think I can do that. Right. But if that idea wasn't there in the first place. Or rejected. We had flip phones back in the 60s with Star Trek. Right. General idea. Yeah. It's, is it possible? That's ridiculous. Okay. Here we go. Our whole lives are on that. So this zero gravity thinking is really like what could benefit and maybe it's maybe it's not just let's not just wait for club owners to do this but maybe it's people who go to these clubs 
propose these ideas. So you as the participant, you as the student, whatever, why don't you go to your local club guy and say, Hey, look, can, can we, can we do something like this? Do you know what I mean? Like have the pro read for 15 minutes in an hour. Let's start there. Let's not go whole hog on a two hour class. Cause maybe we won't go at takers or whatever. Let's see if it's, if it's, if it takes, and if it doesn't take no harm, no foul. I mean, what's but the you got to drift it though. You got to drift. Oh, it. sure. Not, I'm not saying you, one time. I'm, yeah. You've got to give it. <clears throat> And you've also got to say a year, we're going to commit to a year and a bunch of classes like this and but see then, how it goes. But then clarify to parents the benefits of it. Do you really need to clarify you the do, benefits be of a read aloud? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> okay. Yes, you do. Okay. Your kid's going <laughs> to, your kid's going to listen, like listen, books. You're a haunt. There's, there's really? uh, <laughs> <laughs> Trelise is an author. Trelise, he wrote the read aloud handbook. Uh-huh. It's like the, it, it basically says like, this is why you read aloud to kids. Sure. And you should continue. And we all stop when they're like eight or nine. You should not. Right. You should keep reading to your kids. Yeah. Because the way they, inter- they can hear things and process in their brain yeah. without getting bogged down by reading. Right. So they have to create the pictures in their head <laughs> from your voice. There's so many benefits to it, but you'd be surprised. We have this culture of my kid, my it was good for my kid if they're tired at the end of it. If they're exhausted, it right. was totally worthwhile. Right. We, we This idea of sweat equity has actually taken over this idea of intellectual equity. Yeah. I, and I would say that the danger is that they don't realize that there's sweat equity and intellectual equity in, within the concept of intellectual equity. So, you, so then that. I think you do need to qualify and quantify listen i know we're losing 15 minutes of running around time right but this is actually going to have payoff dividends or you're going to more likely you're going to get parents that say you know they already do reading somewhere else i don't really need to do that i need the class that and that's fine that's fine but there are going to be parents that are like oh this is pretty cool right and along the way you could sneak in sneak in some tennis books <laughs> you know what i mean it doesn't have to be all just regular books well why aren't there tennis books written for young adults right where, where are those books hello i don't where's i don't yeah because because it's all about high performance <laughs> yeah, it, well, isn't that true though it's all about high performance it's yeah, all about, but, but, it's all about high performance but all the things that we talk about mm-hmm. actually foster high performance when this the episode we did before with Brenda, she was talking about like the things she didn't do that right. mentally broke her down. And we're proposing do these do these things now when they're younger, right? That actually will prepare them for high achievement. We're we're putting high achievement first without laying the foundation, right? Of we're we going want to see the movie trailer before we've actually done the script. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> And then, well, wait a second. How is how is the story going to actually go together? And what do we? I don't really. Doesn't yeah. make it, it doesn't make any sense. So I think that to 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 summarize here that allowing your club or your class as a pro or as a parent that's teaching your kid, whatever it may be, some time to create something that's. Not consult with an expert. Make something up. Just, just, just go with it. Try something out of, out of left field. Put it together, and drift on it for a while, and say to people, "This is why I'm doing it, and I want you to hang in there with me." But, but, and I have to. I, I, I think this is important to say because I, I, I think sometimes people have a 
difficult time creating a vision of how this could come together. And I think we also have to talk about the resistance factor. I don't want to drain this into a big thing, but you as a um, lesson taker, you as a participant in your club, you as a whatever, you need to take the lead because the club's not going to take the lead <laughs> and the pro's not going to take the lead. You are the zero gravity thinker. You need to take the lead and you need to say, I really like this, whatever it is, I think it'd be good for the kids. If you have kids, you know, you have obviously taking your kids. I really like this. I would like to see how we could combine this with a tennis lesson. And you need to take the reins on this because I really believe that the club and the pro is not going to do any of this. And it's not an affront to any of these people. It's just they're experts. This is their niche. This is the way they do it. And they don't want to be thinking about this stuff. So, so not only take the initiative, don't second guess yourself. And, and you know what's so funny? Um, in the clip you played earlier, he had said, fail to win. We, we learn by failing, right? There's no wasted. We're trying... Because you're going to get something else out of it by failing. Right. So don't second guess yourself. He said that those, the, something to the effect of those failed experiments become almost like trophies or lauded, you know, as like, oh, that's right. We, we did that and it didn't work, but that's okay. We took this piece from it that that didn't work. Which is the same thing as one of my classes not working. And then the next week, they're like, oh, that was way better. Well, it w way better doesn't happen without uh, it failing <laughs> first. Right. So I, I think it's really important that people, that you don't, we don't, because I, I wonder if any, whoever's listening to this, I think it's really important that they understand that you don't wait for the club or the pro to come up with this. And just, it's not enough to suggest this to these people. You know, it'd be great if we did a reading hour with, Tennis lessons, especially for the little guys, you know, under 10, could we do something like that? You know what the answer is going to be? Oh, well, we'll think about that. So what they should do is say, hey, I've got 10 friends already organized with their parents and we're ready to do a read aloud class. Can somebody here that would do that? Can oh. you find a pro that is willing to read? And I've got, yes, we've we got go. the course, the class goes for 12 weeks and we got 12 books. We got 12 mini books or chapters picked out and we, we want to, we, we'd like a pro to do something like that. Right. And not be afraid. I think there's a bunch of things that we're not talking about here around the expert phenomenon, right? I'm not the expert, so I can't, I shouldn't be stepping on the toes of the club and the pro. No, you're the customer and you know what? Tennis could use it. So don't be afraid to do that. There's the expert of, I'm the club. I don't want to do that. I don't know if I've got any pros that are really worth doing that or capable of doing that. There's the pro. I don't want to do that. I teach tennis. I'm an expert at this. I'm not a, I don't read aloud. But then the parent could say, you know what? <clears throat> I'll read aloud for the 15 minutes and then you We'll do the tennis portion. We'll we'll team teach. Yeah, you could have that. Well, the oh, oh, oh there it goes, dude. There that's go. not team teaching. There's no, you know what I mean. It's interesting because schools done a good job of this. Some schools have done a good job of it because they have they've said, oh, like when parents come in and do readings or parents come in and they work with the kids, they're not. I don't think they're as afraid to do something like that. 
I just don't, they're, they're not because you can come into a classroom. Special guest reader. Well, it's yeah, when, no, no I'm saying when job. you have kids, know, they're not afraid of that. And I don't know why a tennis pro or I, I don't even know if they're afraid of it. I think it might just be, it never dawned on them because this it is where it we feels, play tennis. It, it feels antithetical. But then we have how many podcasts? Don't we have to have seats on the tennis court? Don't we have to have this? Don't we have to have that? No, you can have everybody sit down Indian style on the on the floor, or they can oh, stand. Sorry, or whatever. You, can't, you can't say Indian style. Okay, anymore. crisscross applesauce. Sorry, do you? But you could have everybody. Whatever it doesn't. You don't have to have ten chairs on the floor or fifteen chairs. You no, could you, just you sit just, down. Just sit down and just do it. And, and it yeah, it's a little bit noisy. But and I and I think you know what I think. I think parents who come by and see something like that, they're going to be like, they're going to be like, what is that? I read your kids' a book on the on the bench. Remember? Yeah, I do. Yeah, do you remember that? We sat there and we read that book. Yeah, and we went through how to deal with a problem. Right. Great book. And. But what I'm saying is I think parents, but I'm saying that parents need to take that initiative. And if the club rejects them outright, maybe you need to think about it. Yeah, I know. But I, I want you to underplay that because I want to point out that we're not just saying it, that we did it. Oh, yeah. I guess what I'm saying, you're saying like it's, it's one thing for <clears throat> right. people to hear us say, spout all these things off. I do right. read on, this is not out of left field. I do read in my tennis camp. We do, I've written my own little books about the good pirate or the bad pirate, or right. I've told story time where I've had a chair on the tennis court and I got 80 kids in front of me and I turn all the lights off and I have a lamp and I have a stool. I put my glasses on right. and I will tell them a story right. from when I was a kid, something right. that had a deep impact on me. And, and they love it. Oh, and it's and I let like it's like ten minutes, but then they ask questions. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'll pick up the story tomorrow. It's and then nice, the next day. I'm like, where, where was I? And then one of the bros remind me where I was in the story. It's a nice break for the kids. It takes some of the pressure off. It takes some of the pressure off. Like it does a bunch of things. It takes some of the pressure off. Like, come on, we got to do this. We got to do that. And the other thing, it and I think it would be great for teenagers, but, but because it, boy, it would like. It doesn't just take the pressure off. Yeah. It shows you as a real person. It shows another right. uh, aspect of you as a human being and not just a tennis pro. Right. But this is something that we do do. I It's in practice. I did it with your kids. I do it with my kids. Right. I do it in my camps. It's extremely important. It can be done is what you're saying. It, and it can be done and it can be done successfully. Right. And it's, it's not something, it, this doesn't mean you're not going to teach tennis. This doesn't mean that, it doesn't th mean anything this, But more this is than, in practice now with me. Right. So don't. And you're creating right. your own community by doing that. You're creating your own community where people want to come back and there's a reason they want to come back. And it's, and it doesn't diminish. That's the other thing. It doesn't diminish tennis. It doesn't sit there and go. It, it's not like, oh, well, we're going to sell a lot less rackets now because, you know, you decide to make it into the book club. Yeah. And who knows where it goes? Like, what if you sold the copies of those books and like you kept them right there in the pro shop? And it was like, you know, the parents come by and they go, oh, he just loves that book. And you're like, thank you so much for doing this. This class is amazing. Well, you know, the book's right over there if you want to grab it for them. We're selling it. And they're like, 
really? And, you know, instead of going on Amazon and waiting for it, it's right there. And the, and the kid walks up to it and goes, that's the book, mommy, that's the book. I love that book. Right. <clears throat> and it's suddenly it's like, what do you know? You've turned into a tennis bookstore. And I'm not saying that's what the clubs are going to do, but I'm saying like, you don't know. But a drifter, a zero gravity thinker <clears throat> would say, let's try that. And experts going to say exactly what you just said. We're not a bookstore. Right. You just shut off. You just close it out. The minute you say that, if that's your first instinct, right. you're a closed loop thinker that thinks black and white. That is not a zero gravity think, uh, thinker. You are not going to drift. You're going to have the hard line of, we make sausage. Right. That is it. But you could be. I want to hold out hope for those people, okay. the club members and everything. You could be one of those people if you want to be. Yeah. Don't be afraid to be one of those people because you never know what's the cost. You At first, maybe you don't stock 100 copies of that book. But if the class starts to take real interest and people are really excited, now all of a sudden it becomes a regular affair where you're stocking 100 copies of that book and each book you happen to make five bucks off of. Well, I'm just giving the business person out there a line so that they can have something to hang on to because they're like, well, why am I going to go to the trouble all this? Well, if you have 100 books and you can sell them for 500, five bucks a book, you know, that's an extra 500 bucks of cash for your, for your endeavor. And that's revenue that you never had before. And you're now opening it up to different ideas and you're creating a little community where people are like, oh, reading on the court. It's reading hour. Like <clears throat> this could this could expand to not just like the little guys. This could go to a lot of different people. And then, you know, you could you could bring in guest people too. If you have elderly people in your club that could donate your time, they're like, Well, I don't want the pro to be doing this or the pro's not good at it. Well, guess what? What if you have one of the elderly people who's in their seventies or whatever, they come onto the court and now they are reading. And they're members, but now they're reading for free and they're excited to do this. And now it's reading a whole thing and it, it becomes it becomes a bigger thing than itself. And suddenly, you know, you're 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 growing a community, you know, with by being a zero gravity thinker rather than being an expert. Tennis rockers, in order to rock your body, you need to rock your brain. Right. <laughs> Sorry, staring at my dog. I just had a great, a great line. Oh, there. right, I had a great right. line there. Right. Wait, no, you should no, rock the here. No, you need I'm sorry, I got mesmerized by the dog. I got, I got mesmerized. Tennis rockers, in order to rock your body, you need to rock your brain. Yes, and you just rocked my brain. You just rocked my body. Tennis rockers, hey, woo!